Welcome to the Next Step Business Podcast. I'm Bob Camp, your host. For each podcast, I'm inviting successful business leaders to discuss strategy, execution, high-performing teams, innovation, and more. Join us to learn more about getting the business you want and living life on your terms. Welcome, Dr. Bruce Ramshaw. He's the CEO of CQ Insights and I've gotten to know Bruce, and I wanted to explore some things today. A lot of times, it's easy for us to talk about purpose and being persistent and sticking it through, but you and your team have demonstrated that with everything that you're accomplishing with CQI. But before we get into the company, can you tell us a little bit about how did you become the person that you are? Mm-hmm. Thanks, Bob. It's a pleasure being here, and, it, and it's been a pleasure working with you and getting to know you. Um, and Melissa, uh, uh, just I guess uh, to frame things, uh, I grew up, you know, small South Florida town. Uh, not a lot of aspirations, but but I had some good parents. My mom, in particular, um, was very uh, um, driven by her faith in God, and uh, eventually she became one of the first Episcopalian priests in that church. And so, growing up, I had you know. A lot of uh, influence around helping people and, and that uh, other than my first choice which would have been to be an NFL football player but that that didn't pan out um, <laughs> then I just you know thought you know I, I want to do somewhere to help people I looked into teaching and then uh, medicine and you know eventually landed on uh, doing uh, medical school I had done some volunteer work in college and worked in the hospital I just thought it was uh, amazing opportunity to to interact with people in a way that's trying to help them with their health, recovering from disease or or trauma, and, and so that that was kind of the beginning of my path. Didn't know uh, where where that was going to go. Um, this was in the mid '80s, and at that time, um, surgery was still considered kind of a, a caustic environment. So I didn't think I was going to do surgery, but then when I rotated. In my third year and on the surgery rotation, I think a lot of people go into surgery because they're very tender-hearted. And when they see somebody who's suffering and you can actively intervene and do something like a surgical procedure and then they're not suffering, you can see that tangible improvement in a short period of time. I think that's, that's kind of a, a, an adrenaline rush for, for somebody who really wants to help people. And, and so I ended up uh, going into surgery. So you got hooked. Yeah, and it was all around about seeing, you know, how, how you can impact uh, people's lives lives in a positive way, help them recover, improve uh, from things that are very scary, you know. Um, surgery's, <laughs> surgery's not fun. Uh, it's fun as the surgeon, not so much as the patient. But, um, you know, when somebody's uh, hurting and, and suffering and, and you can do something that is um, likely to help relieve their pain and suffering, that's a, that's a pretty powerful thing. So how what was your journey like when you became a surgeon? It's You've accomplished quite a bit, traveling the world, speaking, a lot of things. But how did that journey happen? Yeah, it was by chance. Um, as I mentioned, surgery back then was a pretty malignant environment. Um, it was almost like going through boot camp, and the surgeons in general were, were not happy people. Um, not all of them, but... Um, it was expected that you get screamed at and yelled at and belittled. And, um, I didn't re- uh, my personality doesn't fit that kind of environment very well. So I, I, 
I, I found four programs in the country that I thought um, would have the environment that I could fit into. And unfortunately, I'm at, they were all small community programs, no big high-gear academic medical center. Uh, so I just wanted to be a, a you know, good general surgeon in the community. And, and I ended up matching at a, a hospital that, that's closed now. But at the time, I was in Atlanta. It was called George Baptist. And it was just two residents a year. And this was in 1989. And just by chance, um, the American College of Surgeons was in Atlanta in 1989. And one of our fourth-year residents saw this uh, new procedure in a small video in the exhibit hall. And it was a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, gallbladder removal. And he went to our attendings and said, hey, I think there's something to this. I'd like to learn how to do it. And very unique in our environment at the time, all of the attending surgeons, there are about a dozen of them, they all agreed to work together, even though they were in competitive practices. And they said, look, this is good for the patients. This is good for our residents to learn this. And so we're all going to you know, pitch in together and learn it together. And the, the model became the fourth-year resident would go learn the new procedure. And, and in this case, that fourth-year resident was David Baird. He went and spent a month with Eddie Joe Reddick, who was the the surgeon who was showing that video. And because of that unique environment, in 1990, we did more laparoscopic surgery than any hospital in the world. And then in my fourth year, the new technique was a hernia technique called TEP, inguinal hernia repair. And the first person in the world to do it was in Atlanta. So I spent a day with him. I was Barry McKernan. And then during my chief year, I, I taught all my attendings and other residents how to do that procedure so by the time I graduated in 1994, I was considered already a, a world expert in, in minimally invasive surgery and began to get invited all around the world. And uh, a few months after I graduated, I did some of the first advanced laparoscopic procedures in Moscow, Russia, at the largest cancer center there, and uh, did the first laparoscopic procedure in the Republic of Georgia in 1996. And President Shevardnadze came and watched me operate, and I sat next to him at a press conference. So just crazy, crazy part of my early career that eventually led me to getting recruited into academia and first at Emory University. And then in, in 2004, I was recruited to be chief of general surgery at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. And that, that kind of began my, my more surgeon leadership uh, career. And that's really where I started studying in more detail about business and leadership and healthcare. And that kind of led to uh, the understanding of how healthcare is not sustainable the way it's currently trying to function and that there is a solution that we can have a sustainable healthcare system. But that was, that was a, now so far a 17 year journey uh, since I started in that leadership position. So question there, because often in business, what we find is that those early adopters doesn't mean there's fast following. How did the medical industry come to adopt? What was that timeline like and, and how receptive were they to adopt these new ways? Yeah, it was really interesting for me because I was I was pretty naive. I was just I was just there to try to learn how to be a good surgeon. Uh, at that time in your career, you think all these surgeons, you know, and all doctors, they kind of know what they're doing. Um, and this kind of rocked the boat, right? The the early, uh, the innovators were surgeons in private practice with a strong motivation to improve care for their patients. They, they had very, um, very strong passion about um, 
improvement, doing better. And until then, the standard was big open incisions and long, painful recoveries. And so, you know, when they, they and a lot of the innovation came from Europe, um, but when they started to do it, and it had to be with a collaboration, uh, gynecologists had been doing laparoscopy mainly just for diagnose, diagnosing things, but the general surgeons wanted to apply it to doing procedures like gallbladder removal. And so they would partner together, and, but they were in private practice, small community settings, um, and they got a lot of resistance. Uh, a lot of them lost their privileges at hospitals. The surgeons who couldn't do or weren't doing minimally invasive surgery, they, they uh, were um, against the innovators because they were afraid of losing patients and losing business and, and looking bad on them. And so um, there, it was an uphill battle. And most places, unlike our hospital, most places have one or two surgeons who wanted to learn the new technique and then everybody else was against them. And if they had enough pa political power, they could get the hospital to revoke their privileges and things like that. So it took about a decade or so. It was pretty much the early 90s, maybe not quite a decade. By the end of the 90s, it was pretty clear that the minimally invasive surgery was a good thing. And, and that's when those of us who were in community saying we started getting recruited into academia because uh, the surgeons in academia were some of the ones that were most resistant to it. Do you think that was more of a resistance to yet to be proven or resistance to I'm comfortable with my skill set? Yeah, I think it's, it is that with a fear you know, driven, you know, fear of, you know, for those in academic positions, fear of not looking like the surgeon leader, which, you know, the ivory tower kind of concept. And then in the community, it was fear of losing business. Um, you know, it, and I saw that there was a lot of anger. You know, I saw things when I was attending conferences, there was a lot of anger. Um, and the justification was there's no prospective randomized controlled trial proving that laparoscopic is better. But think about it, you know, if you're going to have four little tiny incisions and be able to go home the same day and not so much pain versus a, a huge incision, you know, what do you think is going to be better for the patient? It's, it's kind of common sense. It seems like common sense, but we see that in business, just in general business. It's the apparent risk of change tends to outweigh sometimes what the real opportunity is because well, it's perceived. It's not yeah. real. I think that's where fear comes in, fear of mm -hmm. fear of change, fear of um, looking bad because you have to go through a learning curve, uh, fear of the unknown, what's the you know ultimate potential and result going to be. But uh, that's where I think working in small, diverse teams with, with you know, different perspectives can, can overcome some of that fear, hopefully. Yeah. So you had an aha moment at some point in time as being a surgeon and being this recognized subject matter expert. There was a moment where you said something's not right or something's not working. Can you tell us about that? It was it was more of a process, but there were a few different aha moments. I mean, the first one was uh, within a few months of uh, starting as a chief of general surgery. I, I began to really in-depth study uh, healthcare and business and, and and leadership, and and it was a it was a uncomfortable moment where I began to realize, yeah, you know, the way we're doing things in healthcare is not sustainable, and you know it was kind of overwhelming. 
at that time. Um, when you say it's not sustainable, what do you mean by not sustainable? Well, at that time, we were you know having surgeons attempting to hit volume product productivity targets, and they were accepting whatever patient would come to them, like. You know, the surgeon who, who did the most laparoscopic gallbladder procedures, which is a general surgery procedure, uh, when I went to Missouri, he was a vascular surgeon, but he was a surgeon, and patients came to him asking for their gallbladder to be removed, and he would do it. And, you know, it was just, it just didn't make sense. They were doing things outside of their comfort level, um, and I was like, okay, and I didn't understand yet all the science behind this, but I... I said, look, let's, as a division, start focusing on the patient problems and building teams around the patient. And you'll be on the teams that you're good at doing those procedures and caring for those patients, and you don't need to be doing those other ones now. And we started shifting to more of a team approach around a patient-centered team approach. And even though I didn't understand the science yet behind all that, it was clearly better for the patient, but it was even better for the, the, the clinicians, the surgeons. How did you get to the point where you're thinking today, which is really thought leadership in healthcare? Yeah, the the next aha moment came from my study in my my clinical area and working with a biologic engineer. We um, uh, my my area of focus and expertise became hernia disease, abdominal wall hernia disease, and and probably a lot of a lot of people see the hernia mesh lawsuit commercials and stuff, and so um, we. Um, I partnered with a biologic engineer who's a materials expert, and we, and we built a materials characterization lab to study hernia mesh. Uh, until I met Sheila Grant, the engineer, I thought mesh, hernia mesh was inert. It was a piece of plastic, and if you just had good technique and you put it, to, a hernia as a hole, and like patching a hole in a pair of pants, um, if you put the hernia mesh in a good position and fix it well, it's just going to stay where you put it, and it's all about technique. Well, when I met Sheila, she said, no, <laughs> it has biologic interaction with the body, and, and, and you can't put that in human beings. And I was like, well, we do that a million times a year in the United States. So we built a lab together. We started studying hernia mesh that came out of the body. And, and again, before that, I would go around the world saying hernia mesh is inert. Well, what we found out, we were both right and we were both wrong. Um, hernia mesh sometimes stays pretty nice in the body and sometimes undergoes radically uh, ch different changes and it's different for different people. So the same exact hernia mesh placed exactly the same way in two different people can undergo very different biologic interactions and have very different outcomes. And that, that, that blew my mind. And that's where I began to learn that the complex biologic reality in the real world in healthcare is that you can't be a one-size-fits-all a situation. If you do the same thing for every patient, you're going to have variable outcomes and sometimes not good outcomes. We we need to learn how to match the treatment options of the best value to different patient subpopulations. But to do that, you have to have the appropriate data and analytics infrastructure, and we don't have that in healthcare, which is which is which is kind of tragic. So that was the next big aha moment. Yeah. So I'm just going to throw some analogies in here because when I think about what you just said. It's like any conversation you have with someone. You can ask a question and use a set of words in different settings, whether it be with a client or employee or an employer or just someone over lunch. But 
who you're asking that question of, even though it seems like it's a very safe question, could be interpreted very differently. The reason why I'm bringing that up now because it's in the world of business, I think oftentimes we assume that what we say is going to be received in a particular way, and it rarely is. Sometimes, but rarely. Well, there's variation, and that's, I'm sure we'll talk about that. That began my learning that took over a decade of, of the whole paradigm of systems and data science. And, and when you understand systems and data science, you understand there's no one size fits all. Um, there's different, you know, it requires context, situation, you know, all these different factors are in play. And so like you said, if you, if you say a simple question or place a simple hernia mesh, you're not going to have the same response. But the, the interesting thing is, if you study the data enough, you can identify patterns and you can identify clusters or subpopulations. So you can understand why one person in a cluster would respond one way and a different person in a different cluster would respond another way. How did you get to that point? Because that's the, it seems like to me the big breakthrough when you brought up the word system science. How did you get to that breakthrough? And if you could explain system science versus... I think the term I've heard you use is reductive science. Yeah, reduction, reductionism, reduction science. The, um, the, the last aha moment I remember before all the hard work began was uh, I was actually um, taking some time off for a week and I was reading a fiction no novel by Michael Crichton. And it was in it, it was about a climate change or whatever. I was just trying to just relax. But in it, it told the story of uh, um, the National Park Service in Yellowstone National Park. And back in the early 20th century, um, they, thought, they thought there was a problem with the wolves eating the, the deer or something. And um, so they decided to get rid of all the wolves. And they went and killed all the wolves. And then the, I think it was the elk population went rampant. Uh, and then they ate all the vegetation and then all the streams dried up and the beavers left and you know I was like that kind of command and control just here's a problem let's kill it um, and not understanding all those unintended consequences it, my brain just went that's healthcare that's what we try to do in healthcare we try to fix the problem with a simple simplistic solution and we have all these unintentional consequences and lots of people get harmed and and I thought wow, this is, <laughs> I'm on to something here. And, and it was all about complex systems. And, and that was kind of the beginning or the conclusion of my, my ahas that led me to really learn how to apply with a team. We began, we continued to work with the engineers and we brought in data scientists. And, and, you know, we had our small team led by Remy, our patient care manager, began bringing in business people. And we just, day in, day out, we kept learning how to apply systems and data science principles to our own real patient care. And over a period of nearly a decade, uh, we learned how to do that. You know, uh, Major League Baseball did it famously in the, in the book and movie Moneyball, but that was over 25 years ago. And, you know, if Major, Major League Baseball can apply systems and data science, we certainly should be able to do it in healthcare. So that's really interesting from a t a two standpoints. One is we're all at risk when we only swim in our lane and we don't open our eyes and ears up 
and our imagination to other ideas or other little pieces and then think about how that applies to us. And then the second part is this really is a team, as you said, this isn't living in a vacuum. It really is how do you bring in these expert experts from outside of your own expertise to yeah. get to a better place. Yeah, there's there's a couple principles uh, from systems and data science that are, are critical to really uh, learning and improving. And one is you more individually, and that is that growth mindset. Uh, Carol Dweck talks about that. There's other uh, descriptions. It's just really being open-minded to innovation and the potential to change. Not that you have to try everything, but just don't let things be off-putting to you. You know, consider challenging your own beliefs and your own uh, traditions of how you think things uh, have been done. Um, that kind of higher level thinking, that growth mindset, uh, and curiosity, you know, constant learning, um, those are key principles. The second thing is what you mentioned. You can't do that as an individual in a complex system and be successful. You need to have diverse small teams. Um, so, you know, the way we've kind of done it in healthcare is, you know, depending on the process, again, data science, for data to be meaningful, it requires context, so a definable process. So if you're talking about an abdominal wall hernia process, you need to bring in people like a material scientist because you're using uh, materials in your hernia repair, hernia mesh. But in a different context, like uh, obesity, um, you want to bring in a nutritionist, an exercise physiologist, the kinds of expertise and, and perspectives that will be important to that contextual uh, application. And so small diverse teams, they're in context of whatever process you're trying to measure and improve. And then, you know, being a, a, a not a hierarchical, but, but a collective intelligence of, of respect, respectful communication between the team members and all the, the team science that's out there about how a, a quality team uh, applies their collective intelligence for learning and improving and innovating versus a hierarchical team where you can get groupthink and not really be able to innovate. So two key words you brought up. One was complex versus complicated. You know, I, I, when I think about complicated, it means, hey, it's complicated, but here's how you get it done. Complex is a whole different beast. And as human beings, we're complex. Right. Because there's so many variables, to your point, just like the park. So many variables. And then you talked about hierarchy from the standpoint of getting in the way. What brought that to the surface for you? It was really bringing in patient care managers and others like the materials engineer and recognizing the value that they brought and the different perspective you know, as a surgeon, um, you think, you know, you're an expert and a patient comes to you and they present a problem. And if you have a surgical um, solution, you know, it's all going to go great. Um, but patients are intimidated by surgeons. Um, they don't tell the surgeon everything sometimes. There's other opportunities for improvement um, in the preoperative preparation and the education of the patient. That's where our patient care managers shine because the patient was much more comfortable sharing information with them most of the time than with me. Um, I'm busy. I don't have as much time. Uh, it's, I tried not to be intimidating, but 
you know, still just the position for many people is intimidating. So, uh, and then seeing, you know, different expertise, how, how, how different thinking and different perspectives can add value. It was just, it was humbling to learn, you know, it's not all about my surgery technique, it's other things as well. And there, there's ways to improve uh, even surgical outcomes by doing things not in the operating room. Um, it's and both, not, not either or. And that, that works if, if a uh, industry or a company is doing something simple, mechanical, easy to just crank out. But as we get more complexity in our world, that's less and less a good model. And that goes back to your question about, you know, complex versus um, uh, complicated or even simple. And uh, goes back to reductionist science versus uh, complex systems or system science. In a, in a, a world that is static and mechanical, where you can predictably have an outcome if the process is the same. Um, that's where reductionism and breaking into parts and, and the parts equal the whole, uh, that works. Um, and that's a simple thing. And I'll talk about complicated in a little bit, but, but in the real world uh, that's complex, like healthcare, you know, that doesn't work. But that's what our current healthcare system tries to do. And, and that, that static mechanical thinking is where we um, generated our, our research organizations and our research method. It's called you know, prospective randomized controlled trials. Uh, and that's where our big NIH system, NSF, um, all the research healthcare efforts, that's been the FDA regulatory process. That has been the reductionist model for research in generating um, new uh, information, but it doesn't work. And there's a couple of kind of uh, basic um, assumptions that have to be met for it to work. One is nothing can change. Two, you have to know and control all variables. And three, whatever's produced has to be generalizable to all patients in all local environments. And none of those are true. So the whole foundation for that reductionist uh, paradigm is not valid, not in the real world. And fortunately, laws are starting to come in that direction and, and awareness is growing. Um, the neat thing is there's an entirely robust paradigm that has been discovered and developed uh, starting in the discipline of physics that is all about complex systems. And it does apply where, where the redu reductionist paradigm is about static mechanical process. Um, the system science paradigm is for uh, constant change in biologic variability. It's all about measurement and improvement, where reductionist tools are trying to prove statistical significance about a cause and effect. And again, that's just not the real world. You and I have talked about this. When we first met, this has been five or six years ago, and you were telling me what you were doing, and we talked about the reductionist or reduction approach to this. I had told you a story about I had a doctor who looked at me and said, you're over 60 and you have high blood pressure, so we need to put you on statins because it was an element of you're over 60, you have high blood pressure, therefore we need to do this. I ended up in the hospital from the statins. And, yep. and that was that element of taking a few data points and applying it to the world. Yeah and thinking this was a safe thing to do. Yeah, multiply that by 
you know, a billion times, and that's what our healthcare system is doing unintentionally. They, I mean, that doctor didn't have bad intentions. It's just no, had, not at all. Only had the limited knowledge. If this, then this, hundred percent of the time. And then if you have bad complication, well, then you go, oh, let's deal with that. That's the difference in the science. It tries to generate a one-size-fits-all answer uh, that's generalizable to all people, and that doesn't that doesn't work. And it's unfortunately tragically harmful. So. Um, in the real world, um, we need to do things like what Netflix does for entertainment, where they do many different algorithms from different local environments, different um, cultural uh, variations, and they stack algorithms to generate an understanding of what they call taste clusters. So they'll send the, the best set of shows and movies that will be most enjoyed by different taste clusters. And that's what we need to be doing in healthcare. Because for different patient clusters, uh, the treatments are going to respond differently. And so we need to understand the optimal variety of best value treatment for each patient cluster. But you can only do that when we have a data and analytics infrastructure that allows us to do the right thing with the data. And we don't have that in healthcare. But that's what we're trying to do with CQ Insights. Tell me more about what you're trying to do. So, So it's taking our over a decade of learning how to develop uh, these principles applied, again, like Major League Baseball did, uh, these principles applied to real patient care. Um, the, the application of systems and data science, again, requires a context, whole definable process. So we take our method and then apply it to each a whole patient process. And we're really doing what um, the the consulting firm called ABM Systems was doing for Major League Baseball. We're teaching data science to these frontline clinical teams. We're, we're helping them understand how to measure factors, patient factors that they bring into the system, the treatment factors, and how to measure outcomes that measure value. It took us a few years, but we learned, again, the science is all about measurement and improvement. And we learned the most important thing to measure in the context of a whole patient process was the value of care, if we're going to have a sustainable system. Because value includes financial data with patient outcomes data. And so if you can measure value and use data analytical and data visualization tools appropriately, you can predictably lower costs and improve outcomes for any patient process. And that's what we learned to do. Um, when you do that, your costs go down and your outcomes get better over time continuously. But it is a continuous process. You have to do feedback loops. You have to learn how to interpret analytics and data visualization tools. Uh, so it, it's a definitely a, like a learning health system or a learning process applied to real patient care. And that's the piece that really stands out to me. It, it seems like it would make sense, but you're working against an old paradigm but what you hope for, to your point, is the surgery goes better than you than what it has in the past. So patients in the hospital for less time, less opioid use or additional medical or medicines. Um, the return visits are more checkups and not repairs, rework, and the patient has a better life coming out of it. And eventually, um, with enough feedback loops, and it requires this... To me, this is probably the most, the coolest part of this science is it absolutely requires collaborations globally. So ultimately, you can generate algorithms and you can do this in one local environment 
for your clinical process. But that's not good enough. You have to you have to learn from other places doing the same thing. So again, like what Netflix does, we have to develop these algorithms locally, but then network the learnings and network the algorithms globally. When we do that, we have the highest predictive ability. Um, and so it's just, it's a very cool science. Um, but ultimately, you know, wh when we continue to not do that, we continue to have an unsustainable system. I want to bring up, I saw, recently saw an interview with Elon Musk, and he really gets into talking about just being driven towards this future vision. He didn't, I don't think he called it purpose, but, you know, after he made his money with PayPal, he took that money and he put it all into SpaceX because he believes exploration is really critical to longevity of mankind. And electric cars are really about when, if we run out of fossil fuels, how are we going to maintain movement because you know, transportation is so critical for the success of, of mankind. He talked about putting all of his cards on the table. And to me, that really talks to his purpose. And the one thing that I have from you and the team is this strong sense of purpose. And as a result, you're willing to go through whatever, because you've been through a couple of different iterations to get this business where it's at today. Talk more about purpose. What is that purpose? And let's talk specifically for you. Yeah, and I, I'll go through that, but it, bringing up Elon Musk reminds me about the difference between complicated and complex because they, mm. they recently had an article, and this is really important in business and I think in our world. Um, uh, SpaceX is a, is a rocket ship company. Building a rocket ship is very complicated. You need incredible expertise. You need a lot of money. You need a lot of time. Uh, you have to go through one common thing is you have to go through some iterations of learning how to get there. But ultimately, it's a very expensive, very top-down hierarchy with lots of expertise to be able to get a rocket ship successfully to the moon or whatever. But complex problems are very different. Uh, in fact, when you throw a lot of money and a lot of expertise and hierarchy at, at a complex problem like we talked about, it doesn't work out really well. And that's what's happened in healthcare. And, and Elon Musk just started running Twitter and that was the difference. Like Twitter is not a complicated uh, company, it's a complex company. So the same kind of com complicated uh, uh, or the same organizational structure to deal with a complicated problem is not going to work the same in a complex problem. So that's, um, that's one example. But we've tried to throw expertise and money at healthcare as if it's a complicated problem and it's not. It's a complex problem. And so, so as I learned this to your question on purpose, I've always been um, somebody who wanted to help people. That's why I went into healthcare. I, I enjoy teaching. But I think the big transition as I went through this, uh, and it took me really over a decade. So this is not something I expect people to learn um, just from you know listening to this podcast once. Um, it took me over a decade, and I needed help. I needed help from you know, others, you know, patient care manager, the nurse, the patient, we bring, pa that's another key thing, you know, bring the, the people that are your core customers, get their feedback. And you know this from business better than I do, but we did, we began to do this with patients and we'd hear, you know, the patient's stories and how they were impacted by uh, what we did as our surgical process. But as I learned this science, and I learned that there is a solution globally uh, for our healthcare system, 
it it, it really aligned with with my heart and and as you know I grew up with a good mom and dad and, and a mom who was very um, purpose driven and she's eventually became ordained ordained as a priest in the uh, Episcopal Church. Um, it really aligned my my brain with my heart that. You know, healthcare is the only industry where we're supposed to be figuring out how to care for each other better as human beings. And tragically, we have a system that's unintentionally harming a lot of us. And, and we, we should do better. And we can do better if we learn these principles and apply them. So once I learned that, um, you know, I, I can't do anything else with my life. I got to continue to try to move this along. And like you said, it, it's been challenging. I had three very good, well-paying surgeon leadership positions. And as I continued to learn in each of those positions, um, it challenged the administrators and my bosses uh, because it challenged the way that healthcare is being run today. And each time, and it wasn't, none of them were with a lot of animosity, in fact. Um, but at each time we got to the point where we said, I can't continue to work here because I'm not being allowed to continue my purpose of trying to transform Healthcare. Um, you know, I stayed on in some cases still a couple of years. Um, so it wasn't about me. It wasn't about you know my care for patients. It was about the changes that I was trying to do just were not acceptable uh, to the leadership in each of those organizations. And so you know that put you know put me in a difficult situation financially. Um, it was uncomfortable personally. Um, but it in timing has one of the most important things in any uh, entrepreneurial success is timing and timing wasn't right yet. But I think with the pandemic that we've been through, I'm seeing a lot more receptivity to real potential solutions in healthcare. And, and as you've seen, our business and, and our effort is starting to gain traction and really become uh, a solution, not just in our own world, but um, across uh, the healthcare system. And that's encouraging. What I hear from you is really about patients having it better, changing how that all works so that they benefit. It's at the end of the day, it's how do we help? How do we help these patients have a better situation? Yeah, this can impact every human being on the planet because we're all at some point going to get a disease, get get a virus, get sick, um, sometimes get something life threatening, and sometimes die, and sometimes. Dying isn't the worst thing. You know, sometimes suffering over a long period of time is, is a worse tragedy. And we see way too much of that in healthcare and in our world in general. And most of that is perpetrated by ourselves. <laughs> a lot of times unintentionally. Um, but, you know, we have a way to do healthcare that could lower costs, improve outcomes. And when you do these feedback loops, it actually, and when you network the algorithms and learnings, it actually works over time towards preventative clusters, how to prevent different diseases in different subpopulations. And so we can lead eventually to a world where disease is eliminated through prevention. And that's, there's no way that one size fits all is going to do that. And, and that's what we attempt to do. And it tragically fails and harms people unintentionally. So, and, and the other thing that's motivating is it's not just the patients, but all of the healthcare workers, you know, the doctors, the nurses, they're suffering. They're suffering and, and there's a solution. They don't have to be 
um, burn out and you know suicide rate is higher than the general population for doctors and nurses and it's just my brother my younger brother is a is a general surgeon and and it's you know it's 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 painful having been in that position myself and then seeing you know and, and I have lots of friends in you know who are surgeons primarily and and many of them are suffering and it's just it's just tragic that we continue to persist in a status quo that is, is so harmful. Before we close this up, you shared a story with me about airlines and pilots. I'd like for you to share that because that plays into how do you bring a different idea in and think differently. Yeah, thanks. That w- It was a big step in our journey. Um, and it was another coincidence, a lot of coincidences. Um, Dr. Jerome Jerry Berlin uh, was an organizational psychologist. Um, his mentor was actually Carl Rogers, who was considered one of the top psychologists of the 20th century and really brought in client-centered therapy, person-centered care. Um, and he was also a pilot, and he was uh, very involved in training uh, both in the United States and in other countries in the Israeli Air Force. He was a, he was a brilliant guy. Um, but his aha moment was listening to some of the um, black box recordings from commercial airline uh, planes that, who had crashed and had fatalities. And over time, and listening to several, he began to see a pattern that it wasn't mechanical failures or just direct human error. It was really the uh, hierarchy in the cockpit and the lack of respectful communication and lack of psychological safety between the pilot and the co-pilot engineer, flight attendant, the uh, air traffic control. And as he learned this, he realized they have to change that hierarchy. They have to teach respectful communication, not because it's the right thing to do, but because it's going to save lives. And that became his purpose. The interesting thing in the the analogy with healthcare is... um, I've almost been doing this for 20 years and haven't seen much change. Um, it took them 20 years to get the pilots in the, in the aviation industry to accept that that was a need. Uh, they wanted to resist it. The pilots, like surgeons, like doctors, we like being at the top of the hierarchy. And until we learn that it's actually the system is very harmful, not just to our patients, but to even ourselves. And once they learned that, then they you know implemented crew resource management at the different airlines and... From that time on, the commercial airline crashes are almost non-existent, um, and, and that's the model today. So uh, I think it's similar to like what you said. The purpose that I have is from learning that the system is tragically flawed and, and that there is a solution, and Jerry learned the same thing in the aviation industry, and he couldn't let go of that, just like I can't let, let go of this. This is what I have to be doing for as long of time as I can. Yeah, it's a purpose changer. So. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's overwhelming um, to learn that our healthcare system is 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 not sustainable, and, and it feels like there's nothing you can do about it. But all the all that we learn together, um, there is something you can do about it. But it requires all of us to work together and collaborate. And it, you know, it's really the difference between hierarchical, centralized systems versus decentralized, you know, local systems working with, you know, respectful communication and diverse small teams. And when we do that, 
when we make that transition in healthcare and in other applications like poverty and violence and things like that, uh, then the solutions can continue to get better and better and lead us to a sustainable, healthy world. Yeah, so that how that plays out to your point, not being sustainable, in, from my this is not this is purely from my perspective, from a consumer perspective. I see that in doctors having all the great intentions, not having the time with their patients that they need to be able to uncover what the real issues are, or whether they be psychological or physical or whatever they might be. What happens is now we're going to give you another medicine, which creates other problems, which then gets more medicine. And so that's the reason why you see some of these people who have, for lack of better terms, pill packs with eight, nine, 10, 12, 15 things going on inside of them. And I'm fortunate to be working with a doctor who sits down with me and really focuses on how do we not have any more medicine than we need? Because mm-hmm. yeah, there are situations where you need a medication. There's something you can do. But there's a lot of things that you can do also changing your lifestyle or whatever it might be to, to improve it. But if you're not having that time, the doctor doesn't have that time, or you're not, as a patient, you're not willing to share with the doctor what you do, you're not going to get better. It's part of the the complexity. It's all the complexity, right? What works great for one person and benefits them can be very harmful in another person. And the doctor doesn't know because we don't have the data infrastructure to know. So we have to do it by Mm -hmm. our experience or what we've heard or what we've done in the past. And that's not good enough. That's not good enough for a sustainable system. It's the best we can do today. And there's doctors who are very... Um, good at trying to do the best they can to listen to their patient, do research, kind of figure out. But the, we don't have the predictive algorithms to give us those insights to understand that this patient falls into this subpopulation. And in this subpopulation, this treatment's going to benefit them. This treatment's going to harm them. And nothing will be 100% perfect. But when, when we have nothing, it's about the worst case scenario we can have. Uh, as the predictive algorithms get better and better and better, they'll be um, uh, you know, more and more valuable to be able to, to accurately uh, understand. And it should always be with the patient making a shared decision process. We should never still tell them, oh, you have to do this because it says 90% and this one says 87%. You still need the, the person, the pa- patient who's the person, um, understanding their goals and fears and matching them. But when you're informed by good predictive algorithms, you can do that much, much better. Reminds me, I forget the exact quote, but it was a book, and the, the author of the book said something, intuition is important, and that's where experience comes in, but it doesn't replace the data and the science. Well, and the, that's the other cool thing about the science is, you know, you hear a lot about artificial intelligence, machine learning, but when you really study the science, uh, none of that is applicable to the real world in isolation. You can't have a computer tell you which is the best treatment for what patient problem. You have to have what's called a human computer symbiosis. And and how we do that, we help facilitate the clinical team to determine what is the most important data to put into the computer. Uh, Because humans have to figure out how to program the data into the computer. Now the computer can do all the really high level computing around uh, analytics and data visualization, but then that same human team has to interpret 
the analysis of the data and gain insights and then apply those insights. Computers can't do that because they can generate spurious correlations that don't make sense as equal to very valuable correlations that would be very important to interpret, to apply. Um, so it's that human computing symbiosis that's so important. So that's the element of, when I think about education, there's two parts to education. There's the rote learning, which is you just do how to memorize these things or how to think or what to think, which is what we do with computers. Right. But teaching someone how to think, and that's really what you're doing with the surge, is teaching them how to think about the data that they have mm-hmm. and how to evaluate it to know if it's the right data, are they looking at it in an appropriate way to help their patients have better outcomes. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and it's, it's the difference between static facts or static rules and unknowns and improvement and innovation. You know, computers are really good with static rules and static facts, which humans have to create. Um, and, but then computers aren't so good with innovation and uh, unknowns. Uh, if, you can't, if you don't program it into the computer, they're not going to know that it exists. So um, it's, you know, it's the innovation, it's the improvement, it's the mindset of continuous improvement. And that's best done by small, diverse teams uh, with different perspectives and different um, you know, diversity of thought and experience. And that's, uh, that's how innovation is facilitated the best in these complex systems. Bruce, I think that sums up everything really well. I greatly appreciate you being here today. This has been a wonderful discussion, and I always look forward to hearing more from you. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity, Bob, and uh, thanks for the friendship and the mentorship. Uh, Continue to look forward to working with you and Melissa through our journey over the next several years.